You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuts. Hey, friends. Um, one of the fun things now that managing leadership anxiety has gotten a little traction, we we must have hit some kind of listenership metric that uh, someone smarter than me knows about because I just constantly get books mailed to me, uh, which as a bookaholic is a delight. But um, the book that there's like three or four books this season I've been most excited about. And the book I'm going to cover today is from Todd Bolsinger. And I'm not just going to talk about the book. I've got Todd on the show talking about the book. Many of you know Todd from his, I think, renowned book, Canoeing the Mountains, this incredible leadership book about what happens when you're off the map. How do you navigate uncharted territory? So my staff and our eldership have been rereading Canoeing in this season. In fact, yesterday's staff meeting, we kicked around a chapter of Canoeing. Todd's latest book is Tempered Resilience. I think as of the release of this episode, it's out like two weeks or three weeks. It's brand new. It's doing so well. Um, it's really hitting. And that's because Todd has once again written a timely book that we need. But I'm thrilled because Todd's a fellow family systems nerd and he's a fellow Ed Friedman nerd. And so last time Todd was on the show, we had a great time chatting about that. Todd, we're going to get to the book in a minute. But you're, you run the Leadership Center at Fuller Seminary. I would love to hear you t- tell us about what is it you do and how are you helping church leaders? Because, man, church leaders are really hurting nowadays. I want to hear everything you're doing to help help church leaders right now. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Steve. It's nice to be on with you again. Um, so for six and a half years at Fuller, I was part of the senior administration, helping Fuller make a big shift that is happening in theological education. And when we finally got the strategic plan passed, I said to my boss, the president, I said, look, you're going to need someone who wants to manage this. And what I've learned is that I really need to be in the trenches with people leading change. And um, after five years of canoeing the mountains, taking me around the world, I just want to give myself more and more to church leaders and to pastors and nonprofit leaders who want to lead change. So um, I think I might have to leave. And he said, well, why don't you just stay here? Stay here with us. And uh, and I got it. He invited me to go over to the Dupree Center where my best friend, Mark Roberts, runs the, is the executive director of the Dupree Center for Leadership. And so I get to start a brand new church leadership initiative at the Dupree Center. And it's wonderful. It's, um, yeah, it's dupree.org slash church. And I get to take all the resources about leadership and leading change and give them directly to church leaders. And now this is what I do. And I'm thrilled for what I get to do. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what you're seeing among church leaders nowadays. Well, mostly what's happening is the there's a sense of exhaustion about how long this pandemic has taken a toll. And and anybody who thought, hey, we're just going to grin and bear it and make it through is losing their grip. And what's happening is people are really having to face the reality that we're in a dramatic leadership moment and a dramatic moment for adaptive change. And and really, this is kind of a a quintessential moment for people to rethink what is the future of the church going to look like and ministry going to look like in a post-pandemic world? And and how can we take advantage of this moment to not waste this crisis, to lean into that and to learn along the way. And so the folks who are doing that, who are trying to learn and figure it out and experimenting and growing are doing great. The folks who are just trying to get back to normal are really struggling. Yeah. And let me throw a thesis out to you and, and get your take on it. I, I you know, I used to be a hospital chaplain and, and mm-hmm. I was trained in the simple fact that 
the emergency room doesn't create the condition, it reveals the condition. Boom, that's it. That would be the other side, right? As pastors are having to grapple with their own soul care, that they're saying, oh, 2020 was terrible, but really 2020 just revealed the condition we were in. Yeah, love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, so so um, Raul Heifetz, who's the you know the guru behind adaptive change, wrote an article in 2009 called uh, "Leadership in a Permanent Crisis," and he actually used that analogy. He said, "When you're in a crisis, there's an acute stage, which is like being in the emergency room, and everybody, you know, what do you do in the emergency room? All hands on deck. You make sure everybody survives. You make sure it's good. But the people who end up back in an emergency room are the people who say, I just want to go home." Instead of, wait a minute, let's take a moment and take a hard look at what got us here. And he said, you go from the acute stage to the adaptive stage when you begin to address the underlying issues that your organization hasn't had the will to address. And I see this happening in churches and organizations and in the life of leaders. This is the moment to think through what are the underlying issues that we haven't addressed that have been revealed in this moment that now if we pay pay attention to them. Um, Hyphen says you can hit the organizational reset button. And I think this is what many people are having to discover today. And, and one of the big underlying issues is we really refuse to believe that the church is not the center of the world. It's not the center of society. I mean, really like, you know, it it will be shut down and Walmart won't. And, and we get mad about that instead of saying, well, Actually, the best part about being the church is we we are a network of relationships that can endure through any trial. And most of us are finding that our churches maybe don't have the depth of relationships or the depth of discipleship or the leadership development or the resilience. So this is a moment for thinking about the future of the church and the kind of leadership needed in it. Yeah. So I, I like to imagine that most of my listeners are familiar with Max Dupree. He's a legendary leadership yeah. guy. But uh, the Dupree Center, if, if church leaders are listening to this and they're feeling a little like they're running on fumes, they, they need some help, what would be one or two resources that you guys offer? Well, the first thing I would offer is uh, come to the Dupree Center and get Life for Leaders. It is Mark Roberts' daily devotional. So Dr. Mark Roberts, who has a PhD in New Testament from Harvard and was a longtime pastor and has written about 20 books, every single morning will send you a devotional that is focused upon what the scripture says about your leadership. So it is, I mean, I use it every morning. So that's the first thing that I tell people. And then the second thing I tell people is to come find um, our church leadership initiative and look at just, we have coaching and consulting and we've got resources available and webinars that they're for you at this moment. That's exactly what we're we're trying to do. We we even created something um, that we call the Anvil Network. And it comes out of the the analogy in the book about how leaders in a time of vulnerability need to have the security of relationships where we connect pastors to spiritual directors, to therapists, to to coaches, because we just want to be a resource for um, people in change. So yeah, so the Life for Leaders or just our, our Dupree.org uh, slash church website, we'll, we'll do it. Yeah, I love that. My, my last guest, Sean Palmer, was mm-hmm. talking about the power of friendship. We, we were knocking around a few ideas of soul care mm-hmm. and Sean's initial uh, response all costs money, which I think is great. And I said, okay, we have money and time. These are our resources. In my experience, too many pastors still are reluctant to spend money or time to actually get help. Yeah. They're still generally flying solo. Is that what you're running into as well? Yeah. So let me, let me put it even more uh, bluntly. 
um, my wife was a marriage and family therapist. And there was a time in our in our life where I was pastoring a church and she was a marriage and family therapist. And she was responsible. She volunteered in our presbytery to be the person who oversaw and worked with our uh, clergy sexual misconduct task force. For the Presbyterians. For the Presbyterians. So her wow. job was to meet with the people who were hurt because of unhealthy and unholy boundaries from pastors. So she came back one day and said to me, look, as a therapist, the state of California expects me to be in supervision. I have 15 clients. And if I make a mistake and I'm not in supervision, they will hold me more liable. Todd, you have 1500 members and nobody ever asks you anything. So I now will say over and over again, if I was a bishop and I'm a Presbyterian, so I don't have bishops, but if I was a bishop, I would say anybody who's under my spiritual counsel, if you try to lead anything without a coach, a spiritual director, or a therapist, I'm going to, I'm going to consider that leadership malpractice because leadership can't be done alone, especially in times like this, especially in trying times. This isn't just about like soul care that like you need to make sure you take care of your diet, make sure you sleep eight hours. Those are important. This is like, you won't be able to lead, to lead well, especially in times of stress and trial and anxiety and urgency, unless you are getting help a lot. I, I have had a coach or a spiritual director or a therapist and sometimes all three ever since I've been in ministry. And I just believe strongly that people need to be able to uh, take that as a professional and ministerial requirement. Expense. Yeah, yeah. that's really good. Yeah. And also probably for your wife, I would guess, certainly for a lot of fields, they are required to take continuing yeah. education credits and pastors, we graduate and off we go. Yeah. 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 Yeah, most of the best leaders I know are learners. They want to keep learning. And so I, I know I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, but I just want to encourage, especially in these moments, this is this the ongoing capacity to develop resilience, which is what my new book is about, is re- requires us to take seriously our, our need for ongoing learning. Yeah. Yeah. So let's chat this new book, Tempered Resilience. Uh, it's another book dedicated for leadership. Yeah. And uh, that word tempered obviously indicates that you're talking about a forge. Uh, which might be an Aussie word for it, but yeah. tell us about the metaphor because not you don't just use that metaphor, but you actually take each piece of the process and and uh, apply it. Just give us that overview. Yeah. So so I um so my wife who my my wife is a therapist and an executive coach. She's also an artist, and so so she's she's the polymath of the family. And um, so we decided to take together a blacksmithing class. Um, there is a section of Los Angeles where there is an urban blacksmithing community. They haven't had a horse there in a hundred years, but they got blacksmiths. And and you can take a class and sign up, and they will literally take you in the room, in this room where serious work is done, like everything there can kill you. And they hand you a set of tongs and they hand you a piece of steel and you put that steel into the forge and you are blacksmithing. And when I was going through this process of watching that, how a piece of steel can turn into a tool that can be used and, and, and it's beautiful, it's useful and beautiful. I thought this is the process of leadership formation. And so, so what I began to do is explore the whole notion of what it would be to become the kind of tool that can be transformative. And, um, I found a passage from, uh, Martin Luther King's junior speech, hewing, stones of hope out of a mountain of despair. Mountain of despair. Yeah. Classic quote. And it just became this ability to think about what does it mean to become a tool that can hew, not a sledgehammer that smashes things to bits, 
but a tool that can literally carve out of despair stones of hope that can be transformative. And, and what is the process of formation in the life of a leader to become that kind of hewing tool, that chisel? Yeah. With the research you've done on resilience, when you first meet a leader, what are you looking for in that leader in that first impression to give you a sense of if they have the resilience required or not? So here's the most interesting part, Steve, is that almost every part of the process feels paradoxical. You think of somebody who's going to lead as somebody who's really strong. Well, in blacksmithing, if you're overly strong, if you focus just on getting harder and harder and harder and harder, you become brittle. A a chisel can explode if it just keeps being pounded and pounded and pounded and pounded. If it doesn't have the ability to become tempered, which is where you pull some of the stress out of it by heating it and cooling it, like a rhythm of rest and rhythm of restoration. So what I often look for first and foremost is what I say is a grounded leader, a leader with a grounded identity, grounded in something other than their need for success as a leader. Um, I think we see this in the life of Jesus, where before Jesus has said a word, preached a sermon, done a miracle, cast out a demon, confronted a power, the first thing he knows is that he's heard is, you are my beloved child. Uh, Eugene Peterson translated as the pride of my life. Yeah. Right. And I think leaders who are resilient, who can bring change, especially in the face of resistance, are those who somewhere deep within themselves know themselves to be loved and are grounded in something other than their success as a leader. Because if not, they'll never be resilient. They'll never be tempered enough to bring transformation. Mm, yeah, that's good. I've got a couple of quotes here from the book as I was reading it. I I don't tend to underline as much anymore. And I grab my pencil and just, I've underlined a ton of this book, Todd. It's, it's really good. So let me read a couple of quotes here. Uh, here's what you wrote. When an organization feels stress, the default behavior of most organizational leaders is to solve the problems for our organizations rather than change our organizations for meeting the needs of the world. Yeah. Yeah. So think about this. We often think, you know, we say what gets us up in the morning is trying to take God's love to the world, trying to bring justice to the world, trying to change the world. Right. But then what happens is we get out there and we see those challenges and those challenges actually don't daunt. They're not daunting. They're inspiring. What's really hard is when you go back into your organization and you go, hey, there's a need out there. We should go. And those folks resist. And the next, and they resist because the organization exists for me. The church exists for me, right? And what happens at that moment is then the default behavior becomes, well, okay, I need to make sure these people are happy. I need to take care of my members. I got to keep, you know, we got to keep enough people so that we can keep our choir. We got to keep, we got to keep the lights on. We got to pretty soon. I I was talking to a senior leader once who I said, you know, what is your mission? And he said, my mission now is just to survive. Yeah. And I said, you know, here's one thing I learned, which is nobody out there cares if your institution survives. Yeah. They only care if your institution cares about them. And so, yeah. yeah. I didn't write it down, but I remember reading you had this wonderful story about this group of people that wanted the church to change. The leader then starts bringing change. And I, I'll get it wrong, but I, I know you'll remember it. The, the, the group basically said to the leader, can you wait till we die? And yeah. then then bring the change. And he then said to them, well, I think you guys are more concerned about your physical health than 
the spiritual condition of people. I don't think I can wait that long. It was something like that. Yeah, what he actually said to them was, you guys have done a much better job of taking care of your physical health than you have the spiritual health of the church. So the church is going to die before you do. And, and this is a group of older people, right? And and I mean, really, he was trying to say, this is urgent. Yeah. Because the, these leaders in the church had really made themselves believe that their purpose was for the church to be for them and their friends rather than to fulfill the mission of God in the world. And yeah. Yeah. So the section of the book I'm in right now is you've started to open up the themes of, of uh, resistance and sabotage. Mm. And these are some of my favorite aspects of family systems theory. I'm sure they're covered elsewhere, but I've seen you quoting some of Friedman in there. And um, I've had to defend the phrase sabotage to a lot of people because it sounds so aggressive. Yeah. I wonder if you would define it for us. Yeah. So so um, and it, this is the same conversation. You use the word sabotage in church circles. Some people go, whoa, 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 whoa. That's harsh. Yeah. Well, okay. And you know this. What Friedman meant by sabotage is sabotage is not the bad things that evil people do. Yeah. Sabotage is the human things that anxious people do. Sabotage is what good people do when they just want to go back to what is familiar. It's, it's what the people of Israel did facing the wilderness. I mean, you know, oh my gosh, it's hard out here. Uh, they killed our children, but at least the Egyptians fed us leeks and onions for lunch. Maybe we should think about going back, right? Yeah. It is, it is the, you know, from a family systems point of view, familiar and family are the same root word. So when people are in unfamiliar territory, they feel like they're homeless. They're spiritually homeless. They're homeless. And we hate that feeling. So what do we want? We want to go back to what is familiar so profoundly that we will stop change. We'll stop the mission. We'll, we'll throw sand in the wheels and that's in the sand in the gears. And that's what sabotage is. It's, it's, it's. Anxious people doing what anxious people do. Yeah, and I think that's why I appreciate the way you write about it, is you take the, like, it's so tempting for a church leader to say, oh, the people are stuck in the mud. and yeah. But the, the gift of what you're offering us is actually a pathway through people's sabotage and resistance and out the other side. Yeah. So when you're first encountering sabotage, like one of the things you wrote is you should just expect it. Like, stop being surprised by it. That way you won't be as frustrated. Yeah. When you're first encountering sabotage, what's your next move usually with that group of people? Well, the very first thing I do is I go, there it is. There it is. Okay, good. Nice to know it's there because it was going to come. Off the box. It was going to come. So at least now we're on it. Now we know what it looks like. And almost every time the next thing that happens to me is that I'm deeply disappointed because sabotage doesn't come from the person I don't like. Sabotage comes from the people who like asked me to lead. <laughs> They're the ones who gave me the job, right? So, so then I have to deal with my own disappointment. And in the book, you know, Free, Edmund Freeman talked about a failure of nerve, like which is where we face resistance and then we collude with resistance to go back to slavery. Yeah. What I tried to name is what, what I saw more in my own life, which is what I call a failure of heart which is really where I, where you get cynical, you get disconnected, where like it's, it's Moses in numbers 11 when the, when after God has fed them with manna for a long time, now they're grumbling. and want to go back again, man, we miss the leeks and onions. Oh my gosh. And he says to God, okay, if you're going to leave me with these people, kill me now. Like just, just put me to death. Just kill yeah. me. And I think that's for path. The pastor version of that today is, if really this is the people you want me to pastor, well, forget it. I'll sell real estate or, you 
know, for me, it's I'll go be a national park ranger. I'll just go do trail maintenance. I'll just I'll just stay outside with birds and bears and stuff. And, um, and what you realize at that moment, what you have to do is say to yourself, this is normal. This is natural. It's to be expected. We have not accomplished anything until we get through it and we get through it by staying connected with people and leading relationally through it. Yeah, you actually quote Friedman where he said, you've got it in your book, it's only after bringing change and then subsequently enduring the resultant sabotage that a leader can celebrate success. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that isn't that, I mean, for most of us, we think, you know, it is success once we get the church board to agree to it or it's success once the congregation all votes or no, it's not success until we've made the change then survive the sabotage, and then it becomes a normal part of our new system, our new being. Yeah, one of your wonderful stories, I just couldn't stop laughing because I've been there so many times. You're, you're doing a capital campaign, and one of the ways you're raising money is basically criticizing the building that you're in now and how it's not up to code, and it, it was, people cut corners. And you hadn't been there when the building was built, and no one really informed you that one of the fundamental donors was the one that, you know, funded that and he was all offended. So there was sabotage there because he he agreed to give money because he felt pressured to, but he was actually hurt by what you said. Oh, yeah. Well, and so, and so this is one of the reasons why, like, when I talk about sabotage, I talk about it with, like, this pathos. All the people who sat there and watched me talk about how bad this building was, they didn't want to say something because they didn't want to criticize the pastor. They didn't want me to feel bad. They didn't realize that I was, like completely tearing down the life work of one of our members. And of course, then he was furious. And because he was furious, he was happened to be one of our wealthiest people that we actually thought might write a really big check. Yeah, He ends up writing a really small check. And I only find out because he's so mad that he won't talk to me. It became this long process of having to rebuild my relationship with him, trying to make sure that other people could care for him so he could stay part of the church that we could, you know, that we didn't, you know, blink when we all of a sudden our biggest giver wasn't going to give us a bunch of money. I mean, there's just a long process of staying through the process, you know, stay, staying calm, staying connected, staying the course that took us to, you know, we completed the project in a beautiful way. And my, my, you know, and we are, we're able to restore some relationships along the way too. And that's, that's, that's how we getting through relation, getting through sabotage is really a deeply relational process of what we, what I call tempered resilience. Yeah. And, and I also think what we don't talk about enough is how those of us who have been leading for a while are often the saboteurs. Uh-huh. You know, like uh, in our church, we have an internship program, college kids come in, they've got fresh ideas, they're seeing things that we're not seeing. And what I've at least tried to train my leaders to do is say, what, like we all sabotage. It's not that those terrible people over there do it. We're all resistant to change, and the quicker you can realize your own resistance, the more. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the one of the parts that I'm very aware, like I said, I'm sympathetic to sabotage because I've been the saboteur. Right. I've been the person who, who, when someone was really excited, said, "Look, look, look, look! I care about you deeply. Let me just save you a lot of time. We should just shut that down now." And you know, I didn't even think about what that would have felt like to the person, let alone the fact that they they, they probably were right. Like they, it was just me wanting things. To, I mean, after a while, I'm the person who's in the middle of the church system. It, it's it's comfortable for me. I, the status quo is now comfortable for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, you know, if 
I found in my life, the amount of those those early conversations I had where I've thought deeply and someone has an initial idea that they've not thought deeply through, Mm -hmm. where I find myself sabotaging is I've lost patience. Mm -hmm. So I shut them down instead of develop them to think deeper. And then I, I arrogantly trust my own deep thinking. Like, well, I've been around here 10 years and you're new. Let me give you that same kind of thing. And I'm not recognizing that that's not healthy. It's okay for people to come in with half-baked ideas because they've only been there a while. Yeah. Well, and the truth of the matter is, is what you know about adaptive change is that it comes from a diversity of opinions, yeah. and a diversity of perspectives that you wrestle through the competing values. And very often what we're doing as as uh, leaders who are comfortable in the majority voice is what we're trying to do is just make it quicker and easier for us. We would, we'd rather do the thing that is familiar that we're comfortable with than take the risk on something new that actually could be what we long for, but is going to be disruptive. Yeah. Great. Okay. So let, let's take a young pastor in an old congregation. The congregation brought her or him in to bring about change uh, all of the vision about, you know, we want you to reach our grandkids, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Let's fast forward two or three years. And the pastor's now been there two or three years. And the very same board is now the ones most getting in the way of the change. So, okay, they've noticed the sabotage. They've listened to this. What's their next couple of steps? Well, there's two things to do. So oftentimes this is where I end up coaching people. It's right at this moment. I bet. Right, so this moment. And um, I'd say, first of all, the first thing you got to remember is all change is built on trust, right? So one of the parts things we talked about in Canoe in the Mountains was when trust is gone, the journey is over. So I need you to take a deep, hard look at do people trust your leadership? Do they experience you as being competent, doing the things you're expected to do? Um, do they think you're a congruent, caring person? This is hard work. Sometimes there's gaps in there. Sometimes two to three years in, you've got people who've been disappointed or you not, or there hasn't been the development of trust. If trust is strong, then I say, well, then now what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to start framing up the fact that um, the future is going to be built on learning and loss. And so now you're going to have to say to people who you care about, hey, we've been in this journey together. We're now going into a new day. What got us here isn't going to take us there. So we're going to have to learn as we go and we're going to have to experience losses as we make change. And we're going to have to go through that together. And that's a vulnerable feeling. That's the, the hard part. It's usually two to three years in is when you're hoping to not feel so vulnerable anymore. I've been here a while now, actually, the key to resilient leaders is beginning understanding that strength comes out of vulnerability and that strength is developed out of your capacity to lead the learning and lead the process of, it, of people together experiencing the learning and the loss. Yeah, I really like that. And just as I'm listening to you, Todd, my, what's going through my mind is part of tempered resilience is knowing your tendency and then going against it. Like I tend to be a conflict avoider. Mm-hmm. And so just, um, and then other people tend to be too much of a bull in a china shop, right? You mentioned too much work on the steel is going to break. You wrote about uh, Martin Luther King. You reference him a lot in the book. And and of course, what a model. He he wrote a letter from the Birmingham jail to the clergy where he, he used the phrase negative peace yeah. versus positive peace. And when I read that in your book, I was thinking, that's me. I I would be prone to negative peace. So-called keep the peace, yeah. 
which means I, I shrink myself to be less than who I am in order to appease. Mm-hmm. A more aggressive leader, they expand, they, they kind of muscle up. Mm-hmm. Talk to us a bit about what you've seen there and what you'd advise us. Well, most of us who are pastors, we got into this because what we really want is to find the people that we love to know the God that we love. So we didn't get into that. So when we talk about change, what we meant is growth. Like you'll grow more deeply in love with God and you'll become more like Jesus. We didn't think radical confrontation of evil or injustice or systemic racism. or So, so when you see the letter from the Birmingham jail, what you really see is Dr. King grappling with clergy who were saying, mm, we believe what you believe about justice. We just don't like your methods. Yeah. The method was literally to dress up on Good Friday, walk through the streets and say, not everybody is as free as you think they are. And that got him thrown in prison, yeah. in jail. And that got the letter, the, the clergy to write a letter, a group of people in their Sunday best walking the streets saying, on this Good Friday, not everybody is treated fairly. And we start realizing that is enough discomfort for some folks to to really raise up resistance. And that's what he was speaking against. He's he talked about the moderate who doesn't really want enjoy the who's who's uncomfortable, who will stop the transformation. That happens in a lot of our congregations. Yeah, I think a lot of pastors we because we tend to be chronic people pleasers, mm-hmm. we just get worn down by engaging fully. Yeah, yeah. One of my pat, one of my guys, I, I, the pastors that I coach, said to me, he said, "In the middle of this pandemic, I mean, this has been hard, right? This is hard." I said, yeah. so, "You know, this is 1918, 1929, and nineteen sixty eight all at the same time, right? We have a global pandemic, we have an economic crisis, we have social." unrest and uprisings for injustice that have been protested. He looked at me and said, my inbox is a terrible place to be. Like just, it is a, he said, I just, I open my inbox and I at my email and I just cringe about what I'm going to face. And, and that is really does wear people down. That's the, the soul sucking experience for people. Isn't the challenges outside. It's the internal resistance of our people inside that makes us, um, that requires that we develop resilience. Yeah, I really like that. And and I think your vision for resilience is also forcing pastors to dig deeper. Like my experience with pastors is we're just not generally prone to self-care. Yeah. We're, we're prone to pouring it out and taking the hill. And so this opportunity to really pay attention to if you're diminishing yourself or muscling up, uh, how do you exactly be a human-sized leader? Um, I, th- I think you're giving us a lot of tools in here for that. I'm glad. I'm glad to be of help. Well, Todd. Now that I've said nice things about your book, <laughs> mostly it was just a sting operation so I could inflict the gauntlet of leadership anxiety questions on you. I've been looking forward to it since the last time. I, 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 try, I try to measure, you know, I try to, my, you're, I think you're my third or fourth returning guest. What a, what a treat for both of us. And, and I try to measure how long since Todd was on, what's the recovery time? 
Um, and so here we go. Yeah, I, I wish you well. Yeah. Uh, question number one. Uh, we talk about what COVID has taken from us. What gift has COVID given you? COVID has helped me realize that most of the creative things that are going to happen, I have no idea what they are yet. Okay. Like, like, like that the, the, I'm going to have to be open to what I haven't even thought of yet. For example, I lost 15 speaking engagements the very first weekend of COVID. No one would have told me that I would have ended up with 90 this year because of webinars. What I thought was completely shutting down my ability to, to minister in the church actually opened up whole new doors. So COVID just taught me that I have no idea what the future is going to come. I shouldn't ever predict. And I need to just faithfully walk into whatever's next. Great. Uh, when you look at your family of origin, what's one or two traits that you've inherited from your family that have really helped you in leadership? And then what are one or two that always get in the way? Yeah. <laughs> well, I can give you a lot that get in the way. <laughs> yeah. um, but I can say this, the, the two, couple of traits from my family. One is um, my, my parents were educators, both of them. So learning is really important. I'm curious. I love to learn. When I talk about leadership uh, requires learning, that is a that is nothing but a joy for me. That's nothing but a joy. Um, the other part is that both my parents were people who understood that leadership was a responsibility, that it wasn't just a title or a privilege. You know, they were teachers who uh, really believed that leader leadership was important. And my dad was a coach and I spent a lot of my time coaching. And so I think um, a lot of leadership has seen other people thrive beyond you. Your students do better than you. Your players go do what you can't do as a coach. So I learned that a lot. The, the hard part in my family, um, I think, was that one of the hard parts I bring from my, that hurts my leadership is that um, that um, our family, we all are really opinionated. And I, I, it took me a long time to learn that I want to be a learner, but the best way for me to do that is to be a better listener. And um, I didn't learn much about listening. Um, so it's it's the challenge of my life to be a better listener. Oh, I love that. My uh, my wife recently became a therapist. She's an LPC, not an MFT. And uh, she came home from class a few years ago and she said, oh yeah, the, the tool we learned today is the difference between listening to defend and listening to learn. Boom. Oh, oh gosh. Oh, God. Yeah, it yeah. just skewered me. I was like, oh, well, I know which one I am. Yeah. I'm usually listening to brag. Like mm -hmm. that would be my default. I'll listen enough so I can actually, in fact, I just did it to you right now. Let me listen enough. <laughs> So I can share something I know. Yeah. yeah, mortifying. Now I'm skewered by the gauntlet. Yeah. All right. Um, Todd, I, I've come to believe that in the Western church, the inner critic is one of the places of spiritual warfare for a leader. The, the story we tell ourselves. Yeah. Um, would you be able to give us a taste of your inner critic when you disappoint yourself? Mm -hmm. What's your inner critic saying to you? Yeah, so um, so I think of it this way, which is at the end of this podcast, I won't worry too much if people don't like me. I, I, in a weird way, I, I know people, my friends like me. What I worry about is somebody's going to go, well, I never get that 45 minutes back. That was a waste of time. <laughs> like, is that just obvious? Like my inner critic says, oh, oh you really aren't that competent. Like really, like you, like you talk a good game, but you really don't know. And so, you know, like if you look at my books, they're really well footnoted because one of the things that I did is I was trained as an academic and I, I want them to be respectable and that can sometimes get in the way. I'm too busy, you know, you're too busy footnoting to prove your point and trying to demonstrate your competence. And really what people just mostly care about is 
do you care about them? Are you, are you attending, are you attuning to them? So, yeah. Oh, I love that answer. And, and how wonderful for us to hear that answer from a PhD theologian. Like literally <laughs> you have a doctorate of theology yeah, and yet that's still that's. Uh, thank you so much. That's great. Oh, yeah. My inner critic is every one of my professors I ever had who gave me a B plus. <laughs> like, like actually, one of my professors, one of my colleagues at school, I said to her, she was a first person I took in New Testament and the first class I took in seminary, and she gave me a really low B. And I was like, I don't think I ever recovered. I, I, I still feel embarrassed in front of her. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Another thing I keep running into with leaders, but particularly preachers, faith leaders. We don't always believe what we say. Like we are, we're quite good at telling others about the love of God. We we struggle to believe it ourselves. Is there a gap for you, Todd, between what you believe about God and what you encounter from God yourself? Yeah, of course. I mean, so one of the stories that I love is, um, do you know the you know the right the Catholic writer Henry Nouwen? Oh uh, yeah. So Henry Nouwen went to the same uh, monastery that Thomas Merton had been at. I had a chance to meet. Henry now and before he died. It's like the one big name dropper, and I always do. And one of the, my favorite stories is that when T- Henry now and met a monk who knew Thomas Merton, he said to the monk, Oh my gosh, you knew Brother Thomas. And the monk said, Oh yes, Brother Thomas. He did a very good job talking about the small amount of solitude he had in his life. And what's interesting is that it felt like a sting to Henry. To me, it felt like a gift. Yeah. Because one of the things I do know is that I will never know that and truly believe the depths of God's great love and the breadth of God's amazing grace and justice. And I feel privileged that in times I get a chance to speak a few words that are really good about the small amount of God that I know. And, um, and so sometimes I have to remind myself that my doubts are not nearly as important as the truth about God's goodness. Yeah, I, all I can say is thank you for that. That's That was gold. Mm-hmm. All right, our, our final question. Uh, I think I've asked this one before, so I'll just rephrase it. Like during the COVID season, in the last six months or so, when have you felt most fully and completely loved? It, without question, the, the, every night when we pray with gratitude for the fact that in a world where so many people are disrupted, we are so well cared for. I, I am in a, I am sheltering in place in a home with my wife, who is my very best friend. My children will call home, even though we don't get to see each other as much. I mean, like, um, I mean, we just had a really hard, painful call that might have to disrupt Thanksgiving for crying out loud because of COVID. So when I, when I feel really loved is I know the bonds of our relationships are way bigger than our circumstances. And, um, you know, I come out of a broken home and I come out of a family that, that has oftentimes felt disconnected. And the greatest joy of my life is the depth of love and connection that my wife and I have in over 32 years of marriage and my kids with me. So it my now my adult kids, you know. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Todd, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, just for, for our listeners, the Dupree Center, you know, we'll put the, a link to what Todd said in the show notes. I can't, I can't stress enough. Just, I, I just want to wrap this up by saying, like, no one else is going to take care of your soul. Like, it really is your responsibility as a leader, I believe, to carve out for yourself an enjoyable relationship with God, mm-hmm. and, and to do what it takes to do that. And so, what Todd's offering, 
uh, really all of his books, what he's offering at Dupree Center, his most recent book, Tempered Resilience, will also have a link to that in the show notes. I just really hope our faith leaders listen to this, wrangle your calendar, like literally this week. Because here's my testimony, Todd. It it doesn't have to be the way people feel like it is. Like you don't have to be carrying that pressure and being beaten down. There really is a way to have a lightness of being as you lead. It's yeah. not always, I don't want to give a utopia. You still struggle. But I, I hope my listeners take advantage of what you shared. Todd, thanks so much for coming on today. And if somebody wants to get a hold of us, all I got to do is text the word change, change to 66866. That's, that's the connection to the debris center. Just text the word change to 66866. And I'll give you a link and you connect to us and I'll, I'll be glad to follow up with it. Excellent. We will put that in the notes as well. 66866. Got it. All right. Todd, thanks so much. I, I look forward to the next time. Me too. Me too indeed. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.